0: This is Allison Markoski and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison during our winter pledge drive. Keep your calls coming. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: UW System President Jay Rothman will propose a 5% raise in next year's tuition for in-state undergraduate students. The Associated Press is reporting that Rothman will ask the Board of Regents to approve the increase in April. Rothman projects the new funds would bring in about $38 million annually. If approved, it would be the first time in a decade that in-state tuition has changed. Lawmakers froze in-state undergraduate tuition in 2013, but that freeze was lifted in 2021. Since then, pandemic pandemic relief money has covered rising costs from inflation. Opponents to the increase are worried about the costs facing low-income families. State representative, state representative Katrina Shanklin, a Democrat from Stevens Point, says the legislature needs to commit more aid to the system. Republican state representative David Murphy of Outagamie County has proposed a bill that would cap system tuition at the rate of inflation.
0: The price tag of Assembly Speaker Robin Voss's investigation into the 2020 presidential election has reached almost two and a half million dollars, as reported by Wisconsin Public Radio. The latest taxpayer expense came in the form of legal fees awarded to the liberal group American Oversight. A Dane County judge ordered Voss to pay the group's lawsuit expenses, citing a state statute that asserts the government is responsible for attorney fees when it loses a public records case. A Wiss politics review found that the investigation cost over $500,000. But the bulk of the spending came from attorney's fees in dealing with the lawsuits associated with the investigation itself. Four lawsuits came from American Oversight, which prevailed in three of them. Voss said he'll likely appeal the ruling and suggested the judge was politically motivated.
1: New legislation is being proposed to let some breast cancer screenings be available for free. The Capital Times reports that two Republican legislatures, Legislators are putting forward an expansion to an existing law that would have women with an increased risk of breast cancer not be charged for screenings beyond mammograms. The law and the proposed expansion was inspired by Gail Zemer. Zemer was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. She never missed a mammogram, but the tumor wasn't caught because of her dense breast tissue, something that affects 45% of women. The new proposal would have health insurance policies cover breast screening examinations for women with increased risk of breast cancer.
0: The state would sell three downtown office buildings under a proposal from Governor Tony Evers' administration that was unveiled Wednesday. Under the governor's Vision 2030 strategic plan, the sales would reduce the state's real estate footprint in Madison by more than 28 percent, according to the Wisconsin State Journal buildings to be sold are the State Human Services building also known as the State Office building at 1 West Wilson Street, the State Natural Resources building also known as Jeff 2 at 101 South Webster Street, and the State Education building or Jeff 3 at 125 South Webster Street. The sales would save the state about $446 million in deferred maintenance and renovation costs, the state journal reports. The plan will require approval in the legislature as part of the state's capital budget.
1: The future of Madison's oldest piece of art, public art hangs in the balance and the city wants the public to help decide its fate. The Annie C. Stewart Fountain in Vilas Park was built between 1917 and 1925 as a memorial to Stewart, an advocate for charity who died by suicide in 1905 weathering and acts of vandalism going back to the 1930s have rendered the family fountain nearly beyond repair according to a statement from the city some residents have argued that the fountain should be preserved for its historical significance and as a tribute to a person with mental illness others have noted that its location near the violence park effigy mound group would not be permitted today to ensure that it has a broad gauge of public sentiment the city invites residents to respond to an online survey about conservation options for the fountain. You can find the survey under the new tab, News tab of the City of Madison's website.
0: And those were your local news headlines. We turn now to two special guests in the studio who want to tell you a little something about WORT and our Winter Pledge Drive.
1: Workers at the popular Madison Sourdough sourdough Bakery filed for union recognition with the National Labor Relations Board on Monday. This move comes after the current business owners reportedly refused to recognize the petition submitted by workers requesting third-party mediation, according to the Capital Times. WORT reporter Aaron Ashley has the story.
2: One of Madison's more popular bakeries is making local headlines but not for its iconic bread recipes. Workers at Madison Sourdough filed for union recognition with the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, on Monday. That follows business owners' refusal to recognize the initial petition last week and requesting a secret ballot supervised by the NLRB, reports the Capital Times. Workers initially petitioned for recognition to join the United Food and Commercial Workers, or UFCW, Local 1473 but were denied. The allegations and petition brought forward by Madison Sourdough workers are not available to the public at the time of broadcast. WORT attempted to contact over two dozen current employees at the bakery today, and none returned our call by broadcast. Several representatives with UFCW 1473 and the legal firm representing workers at Madison Sourdough also did not return our request for an interview. The question of whether or not the bakery workers will form a union now heads to the ballot box in a process that will take weeks. It is unclear how many of the company's 42 eligible employees support the move to unionize, but if a majority vote in favor, UFCW Local 1473 will become the representative of the employees in negotiations with the business owners. If successful, the business owners will have to negotiate pay raises and benefits through UFCW Instead of with individual employees. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. A
0: media trend. Last summer, a viral social media trend taught the, quote, Kia boys just how easy it was to break into and steal Kia and Hyundai vehicles. Now, even as the car manufacturers are providing free security updates nationwide, multiple states and municipalities across the country are looking to hold those companies accountable. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more.
3: Car manufacturers Kia and Hyundai are releasing a free software update for millions of vehicles following a nationwide surge of car thefts across the country. That's after a viral social media trend showed how to take advantage of defects in certain vehicles, making them easy to steal. The defect occurs in certain Kia and Hyundai models, those that require a physical key to start instead of a push button. The viral trend took off in 2021, showing young teens using only a screwdriver and a USB cord to break into and steal cars in just around 30 seconds. One video on YouTube titled, I Stole a Kia with a TikTok Hack, has nearly 3 million views. On the social media app TikTok, the hashtag Kia Boys currently has over 33 million views. The trend sparked a rash of car thefts across the country last summer, which Stephanie Fryer with the Madison Police Department says continues to this day. She says that in July and August of last year, around 45 percent of all stolen cars in Madison were either Kias or Hyundais.
4: We saw a 270 percent increase in the number of stolen Hyundai or Kia brands from 2021 to 2022. So that's like a pretty drastic number. And we weren't the only community dealing with this. You know, this is just that number that was happening here in Madison.
3: Last month, Police Chief Sean Barnes said that the overall number of cars stolen last year decreased by 12 percent, but said that he was still concerned about how many of those car thefts are committed by young people.
1: Went to JRC and I spoke with young people who were in there for stealing cars. I spoke to one young man who admitted to me stealing over 100 cars.
3: Fryer says that by the end of the summer, the number of stolen Kias and Hyundai steadily dropped. She says that in October of last year, only around 9 percent of stolen vehicles were Kias or Hyundai.
4: Right now, we are still seeing these makes and models of vehicles stolen. Um, It's not at the alarming rate that we saw over the summer when videos were going viral showing how easy it was to steal, steal these vehicles, but we are still having people reach out, you know, reporting that their Kia Hyundai was stolen, reaching out to see if they could get a wheel lock from us, and just reaching out frustrated that this is still a problem for them, you know, and that they're still worried about this issue months after the summer.
3: Because of how easy it is to break into and start the cars, Fryer says that the MPD has focused on preventing the thefts with steering wheel locks and community outreach
4: we went to apartment complexes and basically like worked with property managers encouraging people if they have a Hyundai or Kia to get a wheel lock or park it in a secure place. We did that wheel lock giveaway at our national night out um, when we were out in front of the Mallards where we basically got a hundred of them from the automakers and were able to provide those to people in our community. And we just did a lot of door-to-door stuff. If we saw someone who had one of those impacted Kia or Hyundai models parked in front of their house or, you know, on the street We just would try to find the owner or the driver of that vehicle and just notify them about this problem.
3: Multiple states and municipalities have filed lawsuits against both Kia and Hyundai over the thefts, saying that those companies are responsible for the design flaws that led to the thefts. CNBC reported in September that 12 states had filed class action lawsuits against the car manufacturers. CBS 58 in Milwaukee, where over two-thirds of all the vehicles stolen in 2021 were either Kias or Hyundais, reports that Wisconsin's largest city is currently reviewing their legal options. Earlier today, City Attorney Mike Haas released a resolution to hire outside counsel to represent the city in a lawsuit against Kia and Hyundai. According to the resolution, which will be introduced to the Common Council at their next meeting next Tuesday, the city would join other affected cities by filing suit against Kia and Hyundai to abate the costs sustained by the city in responding to the rise of car thefts. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway is the sole sponsor on the resolution. Last month, Hyundai announced that the anti-theft upgrade would be available for Elantra model vehicles made between 2017 and 2020, Sonata vehicles made between 2015 and 2019, and Venue vehicles made between 2020 and 2021. Upgrades for the remaining affected vehicles are expected to be available by June. Fryer says that it is important for those with Ikea or Hyundai vehicles to reach out to their dealership and get the security upgrade.
4: If you have one of those Kia or Hyundais that qualify for this upgrade, like, you know, contact your dealer, make that appointment, and let's, let's get, you know, these cars upgraded so that way we can hopefully help you feel better. Um, I know Hyundai, for example, is giving a sticker to people, and basically that sticker is going to alert potentially would-be fees that, hey, I have this upgrade. You're not going to get away with my vehicle.
3: That upgrade is free to all Kia and Hyundai users, but is not considered a recall. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggyhow.
1: Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to The Local News on WORT 89.9 FM, right here in Madison. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Alec and Markoski. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, contributor Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government for a segment we call Transparency Talk. In this week's archival edition, Kamenick and Chester talk about the delicate balance difference between elected officials and appointed administrators. A quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government.
5: All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week? Howdy, howdy, Jonah. I'm doing good. Yourself? I'm doing fine and dandy. We are coming to the end of another news week for uh, me personally, which means I'm excited to get into weekend mode. But hey, before I can say TGI Thursday, because we don't have a Friday broadcast, we've got an interesting episode topic to dive into here today. And that's uh, the question of who's really in charge on certain governmental bodies, elected boards or hired administrators. The most common example folks might have of a power balance between an elected board and a hired administrator is a school board versus a school administrator. Tom, take me from there. Give us us the background and the, the supporting details here. Exactly, who's running things? Is it the elected
6: accountable representatives who are on the school board? Or is it the full-time experienced staff that are, are hired by the school board to run, run the district? You know, and this, this is a recurring issue across the state. You do see it a lot in school boards, but it can also show up with city councils versus mayors, county boards versus county executives. And it's especially interesting in school districts because unlike mayors and county executives, superintendents aren't elected. They are hired by the school board. They work for the school board and at the school board's pleasure. But still, I am seeing this crop up constantly that these administrators, and it's not just the superintendents themselves, but the the whole administrative staff, they want to be in charge and they want to dictate to these school boards what's going to happen. And so you get... You, you get issues where administrators are restricted, trying to restrict the authority of the school boards or restrict the school boards access to information about the district. And, you know, I've even heard this from multiple people around the state that the Wisconsin Association of School Boards itself somehow is pushing this line, that, that it's encouraging school boards to fall in line with what administration is telling them to do and present this unified front, so no dissent from within kind of a, kind of an attitude coming from the lobbying organization for school boards, theoretically. And today I, I wanna talk especially about a recent article that just got my blood boiling. So this article described the legal advice that the Green Lake School District's lawyer was giving to the Board of Education in open session that was filled with incorrect and misleading information. So and the whole gist of this is that the, the lawyers, obviously acting on behalf of the administration and try, basically bullying the members into taking a back seat, not listening to the public and becoming a rubber stamp for administration.
5: Now give me the issues at hand in that case. Let's take a little bit of a deeper dive into that.
6: Yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read what the article quotes this lawyer is saying. So here's number one. The lawyer said elected officials can only act in an official capacity during a meeting. Stop right there. That's basically accurate. They have to do something officially. They have to be meeting in a a publicly noticed meeting. But it goes on saying, so they should not be discussing government business or discussing school policy with members of the public outside of a meeting. Wait a second, the lawyer is telling them you should not talk to your constituents. You should not listen to the people who elected you. You should not care about what they think about public policy, about school district policy. That that is horrible advice. Number two, members of the school board are supposed to act with the exact same information I don't know where that's written down. Uh, <laughs> so when someone discusses policy outside of a meeting, they could unintentionally gain information that other officials haven't. Huh, cause you know, God forbid that the school board members learn facts and learn information from anybody other than the administrators. I, I can tell what's going on here is the administration wants to control the flow of information to these board members. Number three, When you're only a member of the board, when you're in this room, when you go through that door, you're no longer a school board member, you're a citizen. False, false, false. This is not a nine to five clock in clock out job. These are elected representatives. Number four, when school board members receive emails from members of the public, oh boy, I see where this is going, related (laughs) to district business, they are instructed to pass the email along to administration and to instruct the public to speak in public comments during the board meeting or to submit written comments. So the superintendent and the administrators work for the school board, this is a reminder, not the other way around. They're trying to tell the school board that that these elected officials should tell people, tell their own constituents not to be contacting them except in an official meeting. That's wrong, that's horrible advice, that's
5: anti-democratic in all kinds of ways. You're on a roll, Tom. Just go ahead and keep posting up your Martin Luther-esque list of grievances. <laughs> we'll, we'll wrap yeah. it all up at the end with, with some, with some con- overarching thoughts, but keep going. Keep nailing them up.
6: Nail these to the school board doors is what I'm saying. <laughs> Next one. Now we're talking about Facebook and social media here. Quote, in terms of social media policy, the lawyer recommended school board members use platforms only to stay in touch with family and friends, never to comment on district policy. Now we're getting into First Amendment territory here. All these elected officials have constitutional rights themselves as individuals to comment on public matters. The school board is being told, don't talk publicly about your jobs. Don't talk publicly about the district. What is going on here? This is awful. (laughs) Finally, and and this one isn't even directly related to school board work, but it's just completely wrong. Additionally, the lawyer told the school board, never make a fake account because it's illegal, as it essentially creates a fake identity. That's just wrong. (laughs) There is no law saying it's illegal to make a fake social media account. If there was, I think most of us would be (laughs) in violation of that kind of a law. But no, anonymous speech is itself a constitutional right. And, And yes, if there are some circumstances where pretending to be somebody else might be illegal, but a blanket statement saying creating a fake social media profile is illegal is just wrong. That's bad lawyering. People do it all the time. And even in some cases, it is legal to pretend to be somebody else. Uh, for example, parody. We should all be familiar with parody accounts like on Twitter where they you know, pretend to put words into prominent politicians and other public figures' mouths like, here's what they really mean or what they really think. And those kind of things are constitutionally protected.
5: All right, so we've got our list of grievances laid out. The they have been nailed to the wall of this particular school administration building. So let's wrap it let's let's wrap that all up with a nice bow. What can this case teach us about government transparency? How does that balance between elected and appointed administration versus board Factor into the larger view of of government transparency and open government.
6: Democracy is all about representation and your representatives are those school board members, not the hired or appointed administrators who work for the school district. Those people are employees of the school board. The school board makes the decisions who to hire and who to fire. Nobody should be putting up walls between people and their elected representatives.
5: That will be a good point to leave off for today's episode, for which I've been joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over there at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Uh, Tom, as always, thanks so much for joining me this week. You're welcome, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. And if you don't go, you won't know. So get to those meetings. Get to those meetings, folks.
1: After a few weeks of relatively warm weather and a nice upcoming weekend in the forest Forecast is looking like ice fishing season is beginning to come to an end, but on this week's fishy business, Nate Wiggy Houghton and Pat Hansberg show that there are fishing opportunities still abound in the Dane County area.
3: Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, we've had uh, some nice warm days and a little bit of rain happening here. So uh, just before we get into anything else, what's what's the ice looking like out there on the Madison Lakes?
7: Well, I'll be honest, the ice has taken a pretty good hit with the warm weather we had and then combined with all that rain, I I, I think I read that we got an inch and a half of rain here. And it really did a number on some of the shorelines, but folks are still able to get out on the ice. And once you're out on the ice, there's actually still a fair amount of ice out there and um, some, some good fish still being caught. It's a great time of year to be out. It's just uh, the shorelines took a bit of a beating.
3: Yeah, once you get out, I mean it's it's been great weather out there, but uh that great weather's not always great for the ice and especially we were talking right before we started recording here. We have a another nice weekend coming up here, possibility of 50s early on in the week there. So, uh look, look like looks like ice fishing maybe maybe winding up here a little bit, but that just means that open water is almost here again and then we can uh, start open water and line, and shore fishing again. So, uh, yeah, let's just jump into some of the lakes here. Let's start off with Mendota. What's happening there?
7: Well, uh, folks are still getting perch out over the deep water, and they're a- where you're able to access the ice um, is the Mendota County Park has been really beat up, so there's no access down there anymore, but the Warner Park Boat Launch right here on the north side is in good shape. Governor's Island is also in good shape, too. I haven't heard much about other spots around Lake Mendota, but um, the perch bite out over the deep water has been good. Walleyes are snapping uh, on mid-lake humps. Of course, uh, game fish season closes uh, this coming Sunday at midnight. So uh, folks want to get out and get their last chance at uh, some big pike or walleyes. It's a, your last chance to do it. But um, yeah, like we, we were talking, once you get out on the ice, it, it's generally, uh, I've heard, 10 to 8 to 10 inches out there still. So
3: not too bad. Just have to get up to that, you know, be careful on the shorelines there. But once you get there, uh, yeah, it's good, good to know that it's still holding on out in the deeper water there a little bit more. What about uh, Lake Minona? What's happening?
7: Well, I, you know, I haven't heard much off Lake Minona this week. I, I really feel like folks, you know, w- between this weird winter, winter that we've had and a lot of the open water and now the rain that came through this week, I think folks have pretty much just given up on Minona. But folks are getting out on Minona Bay and the triangles down there still. And they're still finding good numbers of bluegills and crappies in there. So uh, still some decent
3: chance to get out on that ice. All right, and let's hit just one more lake. Keep it a little bit shorter here today, and let's go with uh, Wabisa. What's happening?
7: Well, kind of the same deal down there. Uh, Folks are still able to get out on the ice in in many spots, and and the ice is in decent shape. Uh, The bluegills have been a little hard to come by, uh, along with the crappies. The perch out over the deep water have been uh, also a little hard to find, but folks are getting some nicer fish as, as of late and uh yeah some a lot of good pike coming out of that lake too
3: And now, like I said, we're going to keep it short here. But just before we go, I have a little bit of a fishing report. I went out, did a little bit of trout fishing over this last weekend. It was nice weather. Thought eh, may as well throw a couple lines in. Did pick up a couple of brook trout over uh, about a little ways west of Madison here, out uh, uh, west on 18 there, over in that sort of direction. Won't say exactly where. But, uh, yeah, have you heard anything anything going on in the uh, trout world?
7: Folks are out and getting some good fish. We've had, you know, this nice warm weather has been great. Uh, The rain that we got, of course, is going to have some of your creeks blown out. Uh, But I I would think by this weekend, depending on what weather might come through here, we're going to have some decent trout fishing. So, uh, yeah, things will warm up and those levels will start coming down and, and the fish are real active. So it's a good time of year to be out.
3: And we're just a couple months away from uh, trout season proper here, so uh, yeah, we'll be keeping an eye. We'll be keeping an eye on what's happening with the trout here. Well, Pat, that's all we have for today. Thank you so much again for talking with me. Remember, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime you want just by calling six zero eight Big Fish. Pat, thank you again, and good luck out there.
7: Thanks, Nate. And you too.
0: One of the major stumbling blocks in starting a new project is actually starting. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields gets some good advice from longtime friend and goldsmith
8: Missy Howard. I'm starting this new project. And the thing that I'm struggling with is that since making has not been a part of my life in this way all of my life, it's messing with my identity. Do you see yourself? Has this always been a part of your identity or is it a commodity for you? Is it identity or, or commodity?
9: It's both. I can see why you struggle with that. I can, because it changes it when you make money on it or if you do commit your life to getting good at it, kind of, you don't really have a choice other than to have it be part of your identity, because you commit so much of your life to doing it. And then when you make money off of it, you know, that's why you make money off. That's just kind of a byproduct of being super into doing something. (laughs) If you're lucky, and I feel lucky that I can make money doing what I do.
8: But then how do you, when you're going to start a new project, where does that start? How do you get that, get over that hump of, I have X to do. But in order to get to X, I start have to start at A. How does A start for you? Hmm.
9: That's a good question. Um, As far as, like, making a
8: piece? Yeah, starting a project. Especially when it's something that's relatively new. Mm-hmm. Like, you have the skills to do what it is, but this project that you're taking on is a new version of this thing. Right. Where do you... How do you pull that all in?
9: Uh, on paper. I draw. I draw it to scale. I measure things. I'm pretty precise about it. Um, probably because I mostly do custom work and I have to be super precise about the size of things. Say like a diamond, you know, somebody buys a diamond and they're like, I want this ring built around this particular stone. So I'll start with that, um, which just seems kind of scientific. Sometimes I'll I'll find a stone that I just want to see, like I just want to see it finished, you know. So I'll start with a drawing and then part of the creative journey that I enjoy is being like, oh, I get to see this transform from a two-dimensional drawing into a three-dimensional cool object that I can wear or can sell or whatever. That'll be meaningful to people, meaningful to me, and just see it and then see it work. It's, that's gratifying. Like That feeling is super gratifying. Kind of like a runner's high where you have to torture yourself a lot to actually enjoy running which takes like time and training and painful you know you do painful things to your body (laughs) but then like once you're into it and you're like you know it's like a practice it's like anything else you have to like work you have to like train yourself to get there and then once you get there and you do the thing that you want to do you're just like hell yeah that was great that felt good i'm gonna do that again And or and or like, oh, now I'm going to get a pile of cash for this so I can go and buy some food or whatever, more materials or whatever, you know, like that part of it is definitely sometimes I get to point A because the customer is like, hey, I'm getting married in May. You should probably get my ring done, you know. So that motivates me, too.
8: Is failure ever a motivation?
9: Well, it's definitely a teacher, you know. And it and motivator, yes, it can definitely motivate. I mean, I've I've failed at some pretty major jobs that has changed the direction of my life. Sometimes you know, like breaking a giant stone will make you reconsider doing certain things for people, and then you have to restructure. You know, um, it brought me to a better place. You know, failing at things always does if you're not gonna give up on it. You know because i've made some horrible in my life (laughs) (laughs) i've had to make some really ugly pieces you know doing custom work some people have they have bad ideas but they want what they want and i have to make it you know so i've definitely worked really hard on pieces that i'm just very like oh that looks like total garbage (laughs) but they love it they're super happy about it you know like but People want that they want, and it's meaningful to them, so they don't care what it looks like. So why should I? You know, it's just like whatever, I'll do it.
8: So then is it balancing out those moments with doing things that you really want to do for yourself or somebody else? Is that is that the balance because it seems to me like when you have to do something that's hideous, and I know I think we've all had jobs where you're just like, I cannot even believe I have to do this crap, and your reward becomes a paycheck. Mm-hmm. But does that, when you have those moments, does it make when you're doing what you want to do the way you want to do it even sweeter? Is it a, does it fuel that or is it just something that you just rather forget as soon as humanly possible?
9: It just feels like, I mean, you know, getting paid to make stuff you don't enjoy definitely feels kind of soulless and not super rewarding. But I feel like that's, that's the work. You know, that's where I'm making money is the work. And most of the work for me is the bid, is in the process of figuring out how much do I charge for this? How much, you know, there's like the business end of it. How much is my overhead? What do I have to get per hour? That part I don't love, but that's where I'm making my money. And then the, the process is the part that I enjoy, that I, I don't need to be in contact with other people about. Nobody's really, you know, other than deadlines. It's on my own time in my own process and I can figure things out and that's part of what I enjoy is the is you know where is that point a what piece do I start with what what cut do I make first you know so I have to mental I have to go on a mental journey on how I'm going to make the thing to begin with and sometimes I start at the wrong spot and I got to start over again and that's frustrating but it's like well you just keep going and eventually you get that runner's high where you're just like things are falling into place and I really enjoy it and Now I get to make this cool thing. And I like giving the piece to the customer and seeing their reaction to it too. You know, I mean, that's definitely rewarding. I mean, it's a balance. It's a lot of things, especially when you do it for a living, you know. There's a lot of ups and downs. (laughs) It really is, you know. And even just making things. I think as an artist, I think all artists go through this where you're just like, you know. Like if you're going to make a piece just to make a creative piece, that's a that's a very different process than oh I have to make a custom piece specifically for this stone or for this person. And doing the creative stuff comes with a whole other set of, you know, questions to ask yourself and maybe even insecurities or uncertainties that you have to overcome just by just starting something and not being afraid to mess it up, you know.
1: That's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter this evening was Aaron Ashley. Special thanks to featured contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, Pat Hansberg, and Jennifer Fields. Engineer Dylan Brogan got the news on the air. Nate Weegee helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening and pledging. I am your host, Marcus Slayton.
0: Thanks Marcus. I'm your host, Allison Markowski. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Have a great night.